Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. Um, today, I just want to give start off with a big old trigger warning that uh, we are going to be talking about a mirror lock. And I know that this topic can be really difficult, especially for folks of the New City community, uh, least of which because we are walking distance from George Floyd Square and a lot of the residual trauma from 20, uh, the uprising was 2021, 2020. Wow. Uh, So uh, yeah, wow. Oh, it's frustrating that that was so long ago. And then it's like, we're facing this again. So I know that a lot of folks have a lot of trauma. We invite you to um, take care of yourself. And so if you need to like get up, move around, watch the service from the lobby, um, take a drink of water. If you need to um, uh, call a friend or ask for some support, feel free. Of course, if you're joining us online, feel free to, um, I always benefit from just looking outside and kind of like reorienting myself to space. If you're just noticing some things coming up, it's okay to take care of your body and it's okay to pause as we're engaging in this difficult conversation. Amen? Yes. Um, We are in the middle of this prayer sermon series where we are inviting our community to pray every day. If you don't have a daily prayer sticker chart, they are available on the back table. And uh, if you're one of our distance folks, we can also mail you one. We're challenging our community to pray every day. And gosh, isn't it true that a rhythm like daily prayer is like more important when times are getting so tough and not less important, you know? Like I know that it's when you're in survival mode or when you feel like you're so discouraged or you have such a heavy weight on you, when your weeks are so hard, I know that sometimes it's hard to remember to pray. And yet the daily rhythm of prayer is a survival strategy. Like the daily visiting of God and centering yourself, of finding yourself back in the spirit, grounding yourself back in, is one of the ways that we can make it through as a community. So, um, so we encourage you to continue to pray every day. And then every Wednesday, check in on how your prayer is going on Wednesdays um, on Circle, on our, our social platform that we run off of our website. It's been amazingly successful. Like a lot of people are checking in on Wednesdays and we love supporting each other. So please um, do check in. Um, so uh, in throughout this sermon series, we're going through different lines of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is that prayer that we say at the end of the service that says, Our Father, or Our Parent, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so today we're focusing on thy kingdom come and thy will be done. I had arranged for a scripture video to be recorded uh, in, uh, uh, for this particular sermon. And then with the execution of Amir Locke, uh, I felt it appropriate to shift uh, the scripture a little bit to kind of meet the moment of where we are. And so I will be reading the scripture today and I invite you to listen for a word or phrase that sticks out to you from this reading. Um, if you're in the, uh, if you're live streaming with us, then you can type that word or phrase in the chat. And then there will also be a time if you're on site with us to name that out loud. So this is Psalm 3. And if you're following along on your worship companion, you can write down the scripture of the day on Psalm 3. Hear this word. 
Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are standing against me. So many are talking about me. Even God won't help him. But you, Lord, are my shield. You are my glory. You are the one who restores me. I cry out loud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down, sleep, and wake up, because the Lord helps me. I won't be afraid of thousands of people surrounding me on all sides. Stand up, Lord. Save me, my God. In fact, hit all my enemies on the jaw. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Rescue comes from the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. And uh, so here, here that psalm is, and we're just going to read through it one more time um, so you can really start to internalize this text. Psalm 3. Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are standing against me. So many are talking about me. Even God won't help him. But you, Lord, are my shield. You are my glory. You are the one who restores me. I cry out loud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down, sleep, and wake up because the Lord helps me. I won't be afraid of thousands of people surrounding me on all sides. Stand up, Lord. Save me, my God. In fact, hit all my enemies on the jaw. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Rescue comes from the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. So for the on-site community, is there a word or phrase that's sticking out to you from this scripture? You can call it out loud. Restore. Restore. Yeah. Rescue comes from the Lord. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. It doesn't say kill the wicked. It just, just shatter, you know, make it so they can't bite people. Okay? <laughs> There's some really interesting policy implications of the line shatter the teeth of the wicked. Uh, restore, rescue, yeah. I think uh, this is the mystery that we are to engage today because um, uh, what does it mean for us to seek rescue from the Lord while also witnessing in our community people who do not experience rescue from the Lord? Like, what, what does that uh, mean together? And how do we be honest about that instead of kind of this, like, naive, uh, um, lyrical, um, spiritual, spiritualistic church posture of, like, well, my rescue comes from the Lord, and that means we have no responsibility for each other through policy or through the public. You know, like, how do we actually give our faith teeth? That doesn't get shattered. <laughs> um, so I, I think uh, the way to summarize that question is what happens when your enemies don't knock? What happens when your enemies don't knock? What does prayer mean for people who are in 
uh, situations of ambush in, uh, like we're seeing posted on uh, social media, feeling like they're being led to extinction. Uh, what does this? What does prayer life mean for um, for folks like Howard Thurman says for folks whose backs are against the wall? And if prayer does not matter to the folks whose backs are against the wall, then prayer does not matter. If the gospel doesn't matter to people whose backs are against the wall, then the gospel doesn't matter. This is the nature of faith that we have to be fearless in interrogating. How can we approach our Christian faith from a place of um, truly trusting and understanding how to actually make it make a difference? How to make a difference for people whose enemies don't knock. Um, so I know that there are folks who join New City Church from all over the country and the world, and so um, you might not have heard exactly what happened in Minneapolis with Amir Locke. So I just want to give a little bit of history uh, before we explore into this, because I feel like this topic is so, so important, and if we're going to talk about something that's important, then we must understand context and history. Amen? Amen. So, um, I don't know if, uh, for the folks who did live in Minneapolis, did y'all get like a very slick, glossy mailer or several during the last election from Jacob Fry? Did any of you get like some of those mailings? And so um, here's Jacob Fry on the right. And, um, uh, you know, th these mailings had uh, th these arguments of why you should elect Jacob Fry. And, you know, Jacob Fry was running against um, several... Uh, candidates who were like legitimately campaigning against police brutality and were looking for a lot more of a revolution of the police department than reform of the police department. And so because those candidates were running, it kind of shifted the entire conversation left. And so Jacob Fry, uh, who does not uh, who does believe in police reform, does not believe in um, uh, defunding the police or you know a, a radical change in police policy, uh, sent out, um, you know, his accomplishments, like any politician would, his accomplishments of the past term. And one of the terms, one of the things that he boasted about in this literature was that he banned no-knock warrants, that one of the things that he accomplished during his first term was that he banned no-knock warrants. This was something that, this was like one of the laurels that he flaunted as he was seeking re-election, and it was successful because Jacob Fry was indeed re-elected. Of course, um, this policy for no-knock warrants arose um, in April of 2021, uh, and that was following the mistaken pre-dawn raid of Bianca Mathias's home in, I think she was in Coon Rapids. So basically, Minneapolis ordered the raid of uh, Bianca Mathias's home. Um, however, they were looking for someone, they weren't looking for Bianca Mathias, they were looking for someone else, and they had the address wrong. And so, like, pre-dawn, uh, this uh, SWAT team kicks open the door and holds Bianca and her 12-year-old daughter at gunpoint. And it's the wrong address. It's just plainly the wrong address. The person that they were looking for hadn't lived at that address for 10 months. And so following that huge botch, which Jacob Fry, uh, to his credit, did admit, like, this was, this was really bad, y'all. Um, uh, he banned uh, no-knock 
warrants uh, because things like that happen. And of course, most significantly, Breonna Taylor uh, died at, during a botched no-knock warrant in Kentucky. And, and that uh, was kind of um, um, a crystallization of something that's been going on silently around our country for a really long time of the, the fearful and terrorizing experience of having a, a group of armed people come into your home unannounced uh, with guns and lights. And so, uh, th so, this was, this, so this was one of the main things that Mayor Jacob Fry was saying like, this shows that I'm not being soft on police this shows, this is the evidence that I'm actually going to lead us into a different situation, that our future of justice is going to be different if you reelect me. And whereas the other candidates were advocating for more uh, drastic measures. And then, of course, on the ballot, there was also question two about cre establishing an office of public safety, and so uh, which, which failed. So this was kind of like the golden thread of that that we were holding on to as a city saying like, okay, well maybe this is what is going to lead uh, to change. Fast forward to um, February of, of this year and uh, the, so the St. Paul Police Department was looking for uh, some suspects in a homicide case they had reason to believe that that suspect was in Minneapolis in uh, some downtown apartments. And so they sought a warrant, a search warrant, to be able to find the person. And apparently, the news is still coming out, but apparently the St. Paul police asked for a regular warrant, which would in involve knocking, announcing police, uh, you know, like, uh, like a warrant. And the Minneapolis Police Department insisted that they offer an only a no-knock warrant. And so, the, uh, so this kind of reveals uh, underlying practice where, um, because you know, during um, Fry's whole ban of this, one, there was like a footnote that said, um, no-knock warrants could still be issued if there was like an, I think the phrase was an exigent threat, meaning if there was like a hostage situation, then they wouldn't like knock and announce themselves. But it was kind of like trying to be like a very extreme situation. And so these warrants were still being uh, filed, still being signed. And, uh, and so the Minneapolis police departments um, apparently insisted that the St. Paul police um, receive a no-knock warrant, despite the fact that no-knock warrants are associated with unjust deaths of civilians. Um, furthermore, did y'all hear this? The, the judge who signed the no-knock warrant was the same judge who founded uh, Officer Chauvin guilty in the Chauvin trial last year. So this is, I think, a really interesting, this is a really interesting moment, or like a, it's almost like I can't even make this up, because um, the, when we talk about we need like systemic and the, kind of this revolutionary reform, what we mean is that even though one judge might be able to dole out the closest approximation of justice that we have, which is a punishment toward Officer Chauvin, even though that one moment existed, he operates in a system where he is like signing a whole bunch of things and some of those things can lead to unjust civilian death. 
So like when we talk about like, yeah, we need like big old like fundamental change. We mean like it, it needs to be harder for accidents like this to happen. And like, we don't want to continually give tools of destruction to uh, police officers. So, um, uh, so I, yeah, so this, this so this uh, went on. And um, so the, the Minneapolis SWAT team, uh, the body cam footage is released. The Minneapolis SWAT team used a key to uh, enter into Amira Locke's cousin's house. Um, Amira Locke was not listed in the warrant. He was sleeping on a couch with a blanket over him or a comforter. Ironically, a comforter. And, uh, and he... Um, you know, in it's before dawn. He was a day worker. Um, he um, or I, I, he worked the night shift, and so he was a day sleeper. His family tells us, and uh, and they come. Uh, the SWAT team. Each member of the SWAT team is yelling something different, and so um, uh, Amir Locke, who has a conceal and carry permit, who legally can carry a gun. Uh, uh, had a gun and he held it out and that is when he was shot twice in the chest and once in the wrist. And he died uh, a couple minutes later um, at HCMC. And the the whole, from the, from the entry in the apartment to uh, his, uh, getting to a mere lock getting shot was a span of nine seconds. You know, like, let's just, like, hold silence for nine seconds to feel how short that is. This is what nine seconds feels like. That's nine seconds. And so what does it mean to pray? What does it mean for rescue from the Lord to happen for a mere lock? After uh, uh, all of this came to light, and um, some of you may have seen the press release that um, the interim police chief, as well as Mayor Fry did, uh, that was uh, rightfully interrupted by Nakima Levy. Armstrong to say, um, to, yeah, some of you saw this video. She was like, this is the anatomy of a cover-up. This is the anatomy of a cover-up, was her line. And um, she <laughs> was saying, like, um, we, we need to look at Amir Locke like he's my son, she was saying, or like he's our son. And, like, if he is our child, then, like, how are we so blasé and okay about normalizing the execution of this? Uh, Amir Locke is the third African-American man to die from police brutality in the past 66 days in, uh, like, the Twin Cities area. So, like, like we have to change something. And so uh, the um, so the the community in Minneapolis showed up to protest, and this is why I love. I was about to swear. This is why I freaking love living in Minneapolis because it is like ten degrees outside, and hundreds of people flooded the government center, and and uh, New City Church people came to the government center to hear from the family, to march, to fill the streets. Um, uh, we chanted and we listened to 
uh, something that I'll never forget. Amir Locke's aunt took to the microphone. And of course, this is like in an intersection. We have speakers set up and uh, we're like straining to listen. And Amir Locke's aunt said, um, this is a spiritual concern. Like this is not just about words and things up here. This is a spiritual problem. We need to pray for the souls of police officers, is what she said. We need to pray for a spiritual revolution in the Twin Cities. And it was like feeling a tidal wave or like like a groundswell come up where all of a sudden we were naming what was at stake here. It's not just about, you know, this accidental thing for this one unfortunate situation. We're talking about saving the soul of our city and and what it means to be a citizen in our city. We're talking about what it means to be a human as a child of God living in community together. That is what is at uh, on the conversation table right now. And she named that so powerfully. Everyone just exploded in in cheers and um in applause when she was naming like uh this is this is spiritual. And I think that if we are to take Amir Locke's aunt seriously, then we must address problems of public safety, not only through policy, which obviously needs to happen, through leadership and uh, through, through a reimagination of what it means to belong together, but also by spiritually changing ourselves. Like we, on a fundamental, deep, human way, need to learn how to hold each other differently than what we have been uh, given in this American context. Like we need to fundamentally reimagine what it means to be a human and by doing so what it means to be in community. Fundamentally reimagine, fundamentally remember. And so, uh, so that's why we pray, by the way. This is why we worship, because, uh, because that type of transformation rarely happens in a flash of lightning. It's more like, like uh, uh, trickling water uh, over the course of many, many years. Uh, it's more like every day we attend to our souls and, and try to listen in a little bit more. Like, God, how might I be part of the world that you are bringing? How might I be part of a society where this doesn't happen anymore? Show me your way, God. Show me your way. And sometimes it's a light bulb, and sometimes it's more like a slowly rising dawn where you can't even see the increments of light changing, but through spiritual practice, you're, you're illuminating yourself. So, uh, and I felt that in, in, the, in this march, by the way. This is the first precinct downtown. As we were chanting, um, even just something as, as fundamental as, as yelling in public, in community together, like something about creating vibrational force in your body and then letting that emanate out in concert with other people was a spiritual experience. And it, it makes me think of, um, uh, uh, so um, I've been reading this book in preparation for this sermon series, uh, Joy Unspeakable, Contemplative Practices of the Black Church. And Barbara A. Holmes is, it just does an amazing job of outlining uh, what contemplation looks like in the black experience in America, starting from the transatlantic slave trade all the way to contemporary, all the way to Barack Obama, and she um, and she, you know, just pushes back on some of the stereotypes of what contemplation or prayer means because sometimes, you know, uh, we have this stereotype that like prayer means like 
retreat in the mountains, which it does. And, or prayer means um, like I have my own little like little tea that's steaming up and I get to look out a window, which is involved in prayer, but it's not the entirety of prayer. Barbara Holmes makes a, a case that prayer is also like any time that your soul is reaching out to a God who is reaching back to us. And like that happens not only when we're feeling very settled and calm and silent, but also when we're experiencing really extreme situations. Uh, she quoted someone who, um, an enslaved person from Africa who wrote down his experience when he was saying, the only comfort we had was in being in one another's arms that night and bathing each other with our tears. That's Olauda Equiano from the 1700s. And uh, she quotes him saying like, that is also contemplation. That deep well of grief where it's like so overwhelming that your whole body is consumed with this, that, uh, that a deep experience of fear when your enemy isn't knocking, that just kind of grips your whole being, that is also a contemplative moment. And so she uses the phrase, which I love, crisis contemplation. There is a, a type of prayer that exists that isn't just about, um, you know, retreating and taking time for yourself, which is important, but it, there's a different type of prayer that we have to name as prayer if we are to understand prayer, which is crisis contemplation, the, the kind of, of, of prayer life that comes when your whole body is consumed with such intense emotions that your soul can't help but reach out to God. For that moment of clarity where you realize that perhaps the world that we see around us is not the only help that we can draw on and that something inside of you elevates, calls out to a God who has been uh, waiting and listening for us the whole time. That's what crisis contemplation is. Man, there are some folks here who work in healthcare, and I just want to name like hospitals and crisis contemplation. Like if you have been in a hospital, you know what crisis contemplation is about. Like there's a certain, there's a certain physical way that our body overrides our uh, thinking mind to pray to God when when we're so consumed with this. And, and that's what crisis contemplation is. If we don't understand that that experience is also prayer, then we won't understand what it means to be human. Because if we think that being spiritual is just about kind of uh, removing yourself and and uh, kind of elevating yourself, extracting yourself, lifting yourself up on a cloud, then we won't understand how we're actually supposed to be engaging our society in a real way. Uh, if, if, if God can't meet us while our back is against the wall, then that's not a very good God. And so like crisis contemplation helps us to understand that God is with us during crises though God's presence with us doesn't necessarily mean that the outcome that happens is the outcome that we want. And this is part of the mystery. Uh, this is part of the, the divine accompaniment of God. And we start to understand that a little bit more when we understand crisis contemplation. And so when we look at the Lord's Prayer, you know, our, our line of the Lord's Prayer for the day is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Usually that is seen as, do I have a slide for this? Yeah, so usually that kingdom come is seen as um, an acquiesce, uh, acquiescence, or it's kind of like we pray that kingdom come because we're saying, you know, I'm not building my kingdom, I'm, I'm 
beckoning in your kingdom. And so usually it's seen in that dynamic where it's like, um, I'm, I'm God, I'm, I'm handing to you the things that I'm trying to over control because I trust in you. And that is a very, very valuable read of this line. But given our current context and given the week we have, I wonder if it wouldn't be helpful to understand thy kingdom come from a place of crisis contemplation, meaning what if it was not just thy kingdom come like, okay, God, I'm offering to you what is yours, but rather thy kingdom come like, oh my gosh, something terrible has happened, God. And I'm praying that your kingdom come because what I'm seeing around me ain't it. Like this is not, this cannot be our resting place. What if thy kingdom come was fueled by the burning embers of the dissatisfaction of looking at our society in its broken, uh, oppressive state and realizing that like God, the world that God desires is different from our current reality. And so we're saying thy kingdom come in the same way that we're saying like, we got to switch this out. We got to swipe left on this injustice that's happening in our society because there's another world that God is beckoning and it's like, oh my gosh, it can't come soon enough. It can't arrive soon enough. God, thy kingdom come. Please, God, thy kingdom come. And how can we learn about the nature of the kingdom of God? Well, of course, I think, uh, you know, I'm a good Methodist, so I believe in, in the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Our experience is important. Our reason is important. Our tradition and our ancestors, spiritual ancestors are important. But I also believe that the scripture, the Bible, tells us a lot about what we can expect from the kingdom of God. And so we have this line from Romans that says that God's kingdom isn't about eating food and drinking. He's, he was talking about some purity culture laws. Um, but about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so uh, do you go... Uh, what what is happening here? He's saying like, instead of just looking at like this regulation of like, oh, did I get it right? Did I get it wrong? Oh my gosh, what is this about? Instead, set your eyes on a kingdom of God that is about righteousness, which is another way of saying holistic justice or transformative justice, peace and joy. And and uh, Paul, who wrote Romans, is saying like, if if you don't have a deep and abiding hunger for a world that is righteous, peaceful, and joyful, then uh, you're not spending enough time downtown and on the streets. <laughs> Paul is like, we, we need to cultivate a certain dissatisfaction with the status quo, a certain dissatisfaction with how things are going, because that is how we will locate our, our desire for the kingdom of God. When we say thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come, it's like the same energy that we had outside of the first precinct yesterday in the protest. Like, we know that a different world is possible, so let's get there, folks. Like, let's run. <laughs> what are we waiting for? When will be the right hour of justice to be revealed in our community? When is going to be the right minute where we start taking black lives, like, as uh, when we start observing black lives as if they matter. Like when is that actually, when is the right time for us to schedule that in? Let's start now. Let's do this now. And so uh, that's, that's the kind of urgency that comes with, with thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's saying like, oh my gosh, we got to speed this up folks. Like we got to get going and we got to uh, change one of the fundamental empire logics of our society that there that it's okay to brutalize other children of god 
Like we, uh, there's a kingdom of God logic that cannot coexist with the empire logic of objectification of humans and the idea of people being disposable. <laughs> and so like uh, the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy. And, uh, and it's moments like this week where our prayers can be something that is so fundamentally visceral that it beckons in a new world. This is how we'll spiritually transform ourselves. I also think, by the way, for those of you who are um, on the protest circuit, you might uh, uh, empathize with this. People kind of get like addicted to protesting or people kind of get like, like really like engaged in the action. And I believe it's because something is evoked within, something spiritually is shifted that is like, oh, a new world might actually be possible that it keeps bringing people back. Like, oh my gosh, I actually like this. And so by the way, if you've never experienced a protest, um, not that you should ever <laughs> go to a protest simply for personal reasons. Like it's not like an eat, love, pray protest <laughs> thing, but it's like, just when you're at a protest, yeah, you like that? <laughs> when you're at a protest, like we're here for community, but community also involves you. And so just observe like what happens because when we can start to recognize the shift, this is why I ask you to notice how God moved in your life three times this week. Because when we start to recognize the shift, we can start to seek that out more. And that's when the momentum starts coming in your spiritual life. When you, when it's not just like, okay, I'm doing this because I'm supposed to do this multiplied across 30 years, <laughs> but instead like noticing something actually changing within you, that's when the, the momentum starts to go. And, and I think that that's why people are addicted to protesting. And I think that ultimately that's why you might start to not only like prioritize prayer, but like be hungry for prayer. The opportunity for prayer life is for you to like, not just kind of like, you know, say a rote thing or fold your hands or do a certain thing. It's to create the circumstances for you to encounter God in such a way that something changes within you, even slightly, even like, you know, just a shade or just one degree. And when you start to recognize the shift that God is doing in your life through prayer, then suddenly it's a lot easier to find time for prayer because it's not just, it's not just, uh, it's not just a chore. It's about like, like shift. It's about like, your agency about about making choices that ultimately is is God changing in your life. Like, do you do you know what I mean? Like, when you start to feel something in your gut, it's a lot easier to return to it. And so, the, one of the reasons why I want you to pray every day during this sermon series is because it takes some practice to like get to the point where it's not just weird to pray or it's not if you've been in the church for a while where it's not just rote to pray it takes some practice to like re-emerge and really discover the transformative value of prayer to be able to come back to it again and again and that's that usually is benefited by something of a of a cadence of a routine of a rhythm if your body can start to trust like yep this is what's going to happen every day then you can kind of get out of your head and start to shift into an awareness of what's happening happening in your soul. And so, uh, so that's why we're praying every day. And ultimately we're asking God with a certain amount of urgency, thy kingdom come God, thy kingdom come. And I think that the, the Psalm that we read today is just like a different 
framework of understanding thy kingdom come, like understanding the line, stand up, Lord, save me, my God, that kind of like exclamation point, like, hey, God, we're going to need some help back here. Like that type of urgency is something that, uh, that we incorporate into our prayer every time we say the Lord's Prayer. And if you happen to have the incredible amount of, of privilege and blessing in your life that you're not in a survival mode right now, or if things are kind of like settled and good in your life, which by the way, I completely celebrate, um, I I, I do ultimately want people to feel settled in their bodies. Um, then you can pray this on behalf of other people. You can pray. Th- this is one of the things that the Bible says is like one of the sacred gifts of being a person of faith is, is you can pray on behalf of other people. And so for the people who are facing survival situations, for the people whose lives are in danger, we can pray for them because maybe they won't be able to pray for themselves. And we want to like evoke this Holy Spirit into this situation. And, and, and that's why we sing, you know, like earlier today, we sang a song about shame. And uh, maybe you're in a a spot in your life where you're not wrestling with that much shame, but someone is. And when we sing out loud these songs or when we pray these prayers, we're trying to like, kind of like even out the emotional burden of our society instead of like discomfort being heaped onto people who are going through survival modes. We're trying to like flatten the curve of, of um, the spiritual pressure. And, and that's why we pray for other people. It also re, um, reinforces the bond that we have to all people. And so when, um, you know, every week when we're praying for teachers or children or uh, healthcare workers or protesters or organizers, like we're praying not because um, we have to personally go and do all each of those things, but rather because there's a way that we can share a burden through prayer, that it, that catalyzes relationship and action. That's how you know prayer is working, when it catalyzes relationship and action. So, um, so I invite you to, to contemplate this, because ultimately, I believe that God is creating a world where there is a a way for for black lives to matter, where there is a way for 22-year-olds to be able to sleep a good night's rest, where there is a way for us to create a, a, a society together where everyone can feel safe and also like dignified. I believe that this is possible because God has shown it to me through prayer, as God has shown the past 2,000 years of praying Christians that this is possible. And that's why we keep working for this, not because it's like uh, a dream, but because it's it's an imminent reality that we participate in. And, and that's kind of the good news is that like the, the dream of God God's world is inevitable. We know how this story ends. We know the end of the book is that God is going to make all things right. And so we get up in the morning, protest, work, create relationships and community. We work on our own healing. We establish meaningful rest. We do all that self-care that it seems like a bother. We do what we need to, to slowly, slowly birth a new world into existence. That's what is required. And it is nothing less than a spiritual transformation, a spiritual shift. Uh, that is what we are here for today. Amen.